welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that loves community self-defense. Today we have Ozzy, Laura, and Kellen. And today we're joined by a very exciting guest, Aaron, who's the president of the Socialist Rifle Association. Um, Aaron, do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners and share a bit about who you are and what the Socialist Rifle Association is? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so my name is Aaron. I use uh, I use they, she pronouns, and uh, I'm the president of the Socialist Rifle Association, as you said. I've been uh, in leadership in the organization for about two years. I am transgender and um yeah, the SRA is a leftist space for people to learn about community and self-defense um, in an inclusive environment that uh, is, attempts to be a contrast to the sort of uh, macho right-wing gun culture that you see uh, in, in the world today, uh, especially in America. Um, we've been going for a number of years now, but only really since 2020 have we been a particularly large organization. Uh, at one point, we had the bragging rights of being the second largest socialist organization in the United States of America. I don't know if that's true yeah. anymore, but we got to say <laughs> that at one point. At one time, uh, it was correct. <laughs> yeah, we have about 8,500 members across wow, the U.S. right very now. Very cool. Amazing. Do you know why 2020 was the time when it got really big? Um, there, so it's unfortunate. Our recruiting tends to happen around very bad events. Um, and there was a cascade of very negative events in 2019, uh, that left a lot of people, myself included, uh, really wondering about how they could defend themselves and where they could go to learn about this sort of thing. I joined in October of 2019, actually, and I don't even remember which bad thing it was that made me start <laughs> asking these questions. But um, as we all know, 2020 was not a great time for anybody. And what that saw for us, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon who you ask, is that our member numbers just grew and grew as more and more people with these exact same questions found us. Mm. No, that's really interesting. Um, so I thought we could start with some like broad, broadish history. Um, why has gun ownership and political violence been important to the left historically? Uh, well, the left in general has often been uh, the target of political violence mm -hmm. and uh, political repression. Um, sometimes from states, sometimes from corporations, sometimes from private security. And so I think I think gun ownership as a right to defense from like the story of the American left, at least, um, just comes back to because the other side has them and are using them against us. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, more broadly, uh, more broadly in uh, in left wing culture, the further left you go, the more uh, radical and revolutionary people get. And suddenly you have, you know, the famous Marx quote where it's like the, uh, the right for the workers to be armed shall, uh, shall not be infringed I, or not shall not be infringed. Uh, yeah. Uh, under no pretext, the under no pretext quote, I should have that in front of me, but I don't. Um, so it's been a very common belief if one believes in revolutionary politics, that uh, weapons are going to be a part of that. Uh, but also on the more pragmatic, side, uh, the far right is armed and they are 
actively seeking to do harm and people need to know how to defend themselves in that culture, in that environment. Uh, that was my case as an example uh, as well, but you find that back, you know, we have, it's, we just celebrated the anniversary of the Haymarket Affair, uh, which I believe y'all had an episode about. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that events like that have been happening for a long, long time. And people would like it known that we're not going to just sit there and take it. We will defend ourselves if we have to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so I wanted to build off of Laura's question about history. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the SRA specifically, like how it got started, how, you know, why it got started, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's a funny part to this story, which is that really, if you go back far enough, it was kind of a meme uh, more than anything else. <laughs> a bunch of Facebook pages popped up and started wow, calling themselves. it's like themselves... season of the bitch. Yeah. They started calling themselves the Socialist Rifle Association kind of as a meme in contrast to the National Rifle Association. And these Facebook pages were incredibly popular. Um I don't have the full scoop because unfortunately most of the people from those early days aren't even around anymore. But at some point, some people like looked at this and thought this could be an actual organization and put in the efforts. Uh, there was originally a limited liability company that was formed that went by the name uh, Socialist Rifle Association. That existed for a very short while until, uh, until eventually what we have today, which is a 501c4 social welfare organization was formed. Um, it was very relatively small, like less than a thousand members until that boom I talk about in 2019 to 2020 um, and really like reformed itself in 2020 when it kind of moved from being just kind of some people like, uh, you know, 900 people on a Slack, uh, on a little Slack chat to like chapters all across the country. Um, and I've been mostly a part of the, that recent history from that from that uh, from that uh, reshaping of the organization on uh, we've gone through uh, I'm the second president since that's happened uh, we've gone through two two executive directors now um, you know it, the hands have changed but uh, the organization has just grown uh, tremendously and is trying to has still figuring out what to do with all of this since uh, nobody who founded this had any idea it would ever get this big. So it's like a, I, I wasn't sure it's a, like a very recent organization. Yeah, I wasn't sure either. I didn't know if it was like, because I think I'm sure there, well, we we definitely know there are like some um, armed leftist groups historically. Um, but yeah, it's really cool to know that this is like a newer thing. Yeah, I'd say, I believe... I want to say that the Articles of Incorporation are in 2017 or 2018 for the current uh, iteration of it, but it goes back at least a couple years before that totally. uh, as well. So could you talk a little bit about like what type of education work y'all do and like what, what the focus of the organization is, how much coordination is there amongst different chapters and things like that? Absolutely. Um, so uh, the educational efforts tend to be on the side of most of our members come to us as people who have never tried to own a firearm before. They don't know how to operate them. They don't know how, even how to buy one or how to where to safely do so. Um, that was my case as well. Um, so 
what uh, what people will often end up learning when they join is they'll learn, you know, how to uh, correctly go to an, a licensed FFL and uh, buy a, your first firearm. Um, what is a reasonable beginner firearm and not something that's just going to be a toy later that isn't particularly useful in a self-defense scenario? Um, we have of range days where people go out as a group and just uh, enjoy gun ranges together. Uh, we have a lot of certified instructors who do teach concealed carry classes, um, but also basics of things like dry fire practice, which is the secret to getting good at actually shooting, isn't actually shooting, but practicing with it without live rounds in it. Um, and it does vary a lot from chapter to chapter, depending upon who's there and what skills they have to teach. But generally speaking, those things exist in one form or another across the board. Um, and uh, from a national level, we've also done like gun lock clinics uh, and, um, and distributing literature about safe ownership, which I think is an important aspect that gets overlooked. Like, you know, please don't just keep this in your bedroom drawer that your kids can get to. Like, be a responsible gun owner if you are going to, uh, if you're going to make that purchase. Otherwise, please don't. Uh, is something that I personally say. Like, yeah. don't don't be irresponsible. This is not, uh, this is not the same culture on the right where people have shower guns. You know, uh, <sighs> we, we try to be responsible uh, adults about this. Do you find, and this may be difficult for you to answer, but are there, like, I mean, I think that uh, probably, unfortunately, all of our listeners are familiar with some of the sort of sectarian trends in on the left more broadly. Different people have their different sort of ideological camps. Do you find that the Socialist Rifle Association, like, is dominated by one or another sort of ideological tendency, or is it like a broad group of people? I would say the membership is a very broad group of people. Uh, there is in the organization's history, a very long standing, uh, particularly 2019, early 2020, it was very well known that uh, Marxist Leninists and anarchists were constantly at each other's throats in this organization. Uh, that is the That was the scenario. We had fights on Slack, uh, fights on our forums, you know, all of these things happening. And we've really done a lot of work to kind of quell that a little bit. Um, we have a general agreement that we're here to learn about specific topics and teach. We're not here to settle our ideological disputes. Um, in leadership, I can say that we have uh, a lot of different uh, a lot of different tendencies involved from democratic socialists, Marxist Leninists, uh, anarchists as well, or libertarian socialists, people who may not go for the A word, but generally fall in that gener that category um, all across the board. And I know that I work great with all of them, and they tend we tend to be very mission focused in that regard, but it still crops up, especially at chapter levels uh, mm. where people will start fights. Uh, I also, at a chapter level where I think the majority of the activity of the organization is really in the chapters, um, what I tend to do is when I see a discussion in a chat at my local chapter that's getting uh, very opinionated ideologically, I just remind everybody like, hey, you don't know how, uh, how people who are just joining uh, this chapter feel mm -hmm. about these topics mm -hmm. and you might be excluding them and we want to be a large tent organization. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. And usually people take that like, you're right, that was a little much, we'll take this conversation <laughs> DMs, like, sorry about that. Um, but it can get spicy sometimes because leftists are opinionated and they mm. really want to share that. Uh, but I think 
I think if I compare now to two years ago, uh, our organization has gotten very good at like just planting a flag and saying, no, we're not going to go there. Mm. We're going to focus on what we're trying to do here today. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask just because I feel like we're in a really interesting and like important moment for political violence right now. Um, I think like, a lot of our listeners probably saw that this pro-choice group called Jane's Revenge just took credit for the firebombing of um, like an anti-abortion lobbying office in Wisconsin. Um, and then there's also just been a lot of discourse, um, mostly from like centrists and conservatives, that it's quote unquote violent to protest outside of public officials' homes, um, despite the fact that Obviously, we here on this podcast do not believe that. And also those same officials are violently removing bodily autonomy from people. So I think people forgot what peaceful protests were like people. Yeah, I think people don't actually know what the word violent means. Right. (laughs) Right. Also, I think I was inconvenienced and embarrassed by you being in front of my yard or whatever. It's like, (laughs) fuck you. That's the whole point. That's what protest is. People are so stupid. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. No, it's it's so annoying. But I guess, like, in addition to that, I think, like, we're talking about sort of different ideological tendencies. There are some folks who are, you know, maybe consider themselves somewhere on the left, but who are a bit more uncomfortable with the idea of actual violent protest um, or political violence of any form. Um, so I guess i just love to hear more about your perspective on the use of violence as a political tool for the left today and kind of like how that relates to gun rights and or gun ownership. Uh, So first off, uh, I have to give the disclaimer, uh, as the president of a 501c4 social welfare organization, uh, we don't participate in protest movements directly, and we definitely do not do armed protest as as an organization. Uh, We do that specifically so that it is a safe organization Mm. to join and learn things through, uh, and not the kind of place where you're accidentally going to get caught up in something that gets you in trouble. Like, So uh, the SRA specifically isn't that organization. And I just want to make sure that I'm very clear about that. Um, I do think, (laughs) I think that the question of violence uh, and particularly firearms and political struggle is a complex one. Uh, My thinking, like, for example, I don't believe that it is necessarily responsible to show up to a march open carrying. Um, I think that that is an invitation for violence rather than a defense against it. Um, And there have been cases across the US uh, that have shown that where somebody was open carrying, even video evidence shows it was never pointed at somebody, but someone else was able to use the fact that they were open carrying as an excuse to drive their car up and shoot them at a protest. Um, I'm not gonna say the name of the person from that I'm thinking of in that situation, just out of respect, but uh, that, I, I would encourage people to avoid that and to think responsibly about, about it. Now, if it is legal to do so in your state and, uh, and you have all the appropriate licenses, uh, it may be a good idea to concealed carry in some of these circumstances because of the violence that we're seeing, just like recently in Portland, uh, where uh, a group of people marching, uh, somebody just came up and opened fire on them and someone else who happened to be concealed carrying nearby was able to get to that situation return fire and 
change the dynamic of that situation. That's a horrifying scenario that I would never want to imagine someone involved in. But I think that there is an argument that sometimes something like that may be appropriate. Uh, there are other circumstances, uh, particularly related to like aid work after disasters or situations. Uh, uh, Scott Crow has a great book called Setting Sites that kind of talks about uh, talks about the role of firearms in uh, in in different types of political action and when it may or may not be appropriate. And I think I, I can't remember all of the details, but in their case, there were roaming groups of basically like upper class people uh, just attacking like poor people who were trying to survive in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And they introduced firearms to the situation and did their own patrols um, and less people died because of it. But there were also some very terrifying situations uh, that happened. Um, and I think everybody involved in that still has mixed feelings today about whether or not that was the right choice to make or not. So I don't have a great answer, but it's very complicated. And I think some people don't think through what the possible implications for that type of that type of escalation, what it could mean, and who might get hurt because of it. Because maybe I open carry somewhere and somebody else sees that and freaks out and then someone else gets injured who was just there to peacefully march. And do I want that on my conscience? Uh, I don't personally. So yeah, that's that's everything, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Is this, do y'all have conversations about this kind of stuff within the SRA? Is this the kind of things that you talk about as membership? Um, my chapters had uh, reading groups where we actually did like talk through a lot of these topics, kind of studying community self-defense as a topic. Um, cool. And I think, I don't, I can't speak for everyone across the board, but uh, we definitely have had these kind of intellectual discussions and it's the underpinning of why the SRA is not an armed protest group and doesn't do mm -hmm. community patrols. Uh, this is an educational space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ooh, it is so complicated. We're, we're going to have more complicated things coming your way. Uh, sorry to say slash you're welcome. Um, <laughs> and I just want to say like, I'm someone who has my hunter safety certification. I've like been through a lot of that. I've shot shotguns and rifles. Um, and um, I'm someone who has experienced domestic violence, um, which, you know, many people do. And I am curious to your thoughts on firearms as it relates to domestic violence, um, just because of things that I have learned about specifically having firearms in the home. So, you know, nearly 1 million women report being shot and 4.5 million women report being threatened with a gun by an intimate partner per year. Um, and according to an analysis of the supplemental homicide reports, 56% of women murdered by an intimate partner from 2010 to 2019 were killed with a firearm. And like, I'm here for the revolution, a hundo percent, I just want to say, like, and I do feel like we are at this uh, we're, we're obviously experiencing violence on on a daily basis whether it's on our bodies and our autonomy um or our economic status or anything and i'm like curious as to how do you integrate re revolutionary firearm firearm work safely into a home space where people are you know possibly already at a higher risk of violence oh. That is a hard one, and I wish I had an easy answer for it. Uh, I don't, and that's something that I think uh, 
uh, I personally struggle with. Uh, I came from the kind of home where that kind of violence was uh, was common. Some of my mm-hmm. earliest memories include my father uh, threatening my mother with a shotgun. Um, so, yeah, that hits very close to home for me, and i i don't I don't think I have a great answer to it, honestly, because I think I think we we have communities need to be able to defend themselves, and uh, especially as they are under attack, but. There are people who absolutely it is not responsible to let them to let them have those means. Um, and I don't I don't know what the answer is beyond uh, going to back up a little bit. I do think that I do think that a gun culture that uh, that focuses very heavily on anti-racism, on feminism and actually is willing to address these issues of domestic violence is a step in the right direction. Uh, I think that building that culture and if people come to us and learn to be a part of that culture, hopefully hopefully that can be an inroad to stopping that situation. But I know it won't be uh, it won't be perfect. There are abusers who infiltrate the most you know safe of spaces and nobody has any idea and they say all the right words and everybody nods along and then they go home or they go away and it's mask off and I think, uh, at least in our spaces, we do our best to uh, to vet people and try to catch red flags and basically show them the door and say you're not welcome here. That doesn't that doesn't solve the problem of people at home, totally, obviously, and yeah. what they do. But well, I mean, I'm it's not on your shoulders sorry. to solve that. Oh no, sorry. There's there. You know, it's not on your shoulders to solve that. And I I think you answered the question, which is like, you know, what are what are you doing to prevent that within the SSRA, which is like having those conversations up front and being open and stuff like that, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a challenging question. It's hard to be sure. to you know live under misogyny and patriarchy, but here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the answers are just like, it's not, there's not a simple answer. It's like a case by case thing, which is like, unfortunately, life is complicated. Um, I did want to ask a little bit more about uh, law enforcement use of guns, because I feel like it's something that like, as I was becoming more radicalized towards like, against gun control um, as like something that has this very racist history. A lot of like things that I would hear from people on the left are like, oh, like I support gun control, meaning taking guns away from the cops. Um, And I think there are like very good reasons to support that. Like I was just looking at some numbers before we were recording this um, and law enforcement in the U.S. murders about 1,000 people every year with guns, um, around 2,000 more people every year survive police shootings, sometimes with serious injuries. But there is also a part of me that's like, that just doesn't seem realistic. We're never going to get the police in the U.S. to give up their guns. Um, I guess I'm just curious, like, do you think that that's a viable political strategy at all? And or like what? do you think would need to change in the U.S. for us to get to a point where we could take guns away from the police? So I think... I just want to be I, there, whatever oh. utopia it is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm <laughs> no, just like, sure. imagine. <laughs> and also feel free to question the premise if you're like, no, we shouldn't take guns away from the police or whatever. Oh. Like, <laughs> I don't... No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, first off, I don't want the police to have guns. Yes, I don't trust right. them with yeah. guns. They have... <laughs> 
shown that they will jump to using a firearm before anything else because they have no accountability and no responsibility to de-escalate. Right. Um, But do I think politically there's a strategy there? Um, I think there's a strategy in demilitarization of the police. I, I doubt that one could get the police completely disarmed, but it might be cool if they weren't acting like an occupying army um that that seems like a goalpost right is like hey maybe maybe every traffic stop shouldn't be as if uh somebody is an invader and you're trying to defend you know like maybe maybe it could just de-escalate a little bit um it's interesting because uh some of my more liberal liberal friends honestly believe that we cannot de, uh, de- disarm the police until you know we have proper gun control in America. So the police will always be armed to the teeth until no one else has any weapons whatsoever. And then we can have our utopia. So mm. their, their answer tends to be <laughs> like first so thing to do is- Brain worms. <laughs> Yeah, first thing we have to do is uh, is is just disarm all the people, and then the cops will willingly disarm course, after that. Of course, uh, I disagree. I don't <laughs> think that's no, of course, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah I, I also just in the current American political system, it seems like from all political sides, the answer seems to be give them more money, mm-hmm. and so. I don't. I don't see. Uh, I don't see a political strategy in there in going for disarming the police beyond the fact that it would be rad. Um, <laughs> beyond just being like for it, but yeah, how unclear. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I feel like I feel like you know. There's also just like if you abolish the police, there are no police to have weapons. So you just go in that That's direction. I don't know. Um, no, but, uh, I, I, since Ozzy brought it up, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of gun control measures in the United States. And obviously, you know, they're much more often used to police people of color and especially poor people of color, um, than, you know, for example, um, you know, right-wing dudes who want to take down protesters um just marching through the streets for example um and i'm just thinking about like you know one of the most famous cases is reagan um passing strict gun control measures as the governor of california in large part in response to the rise of the black panthers there so i'm just wondering especially hearing about how y'all are doing political education and stuff how you at sra think about the history of gun control legislation and enforcement yeah. Um, so we also see it as racist uh, and it, racist in origin uh, and also classist in origin, too, I'd like to call out, because in America, if you have enough money, you can own anything um, legally. Uh, so uh, that's that's something that I think I didn't even realize up until a certain point was that, oh, yeah, if you get the appropriate paperwork and pay the appropriate very large fees, you can have a fully automatic silenced weapon. That's totally fine. Um, Can normal people acquire that? No, of course not. But uh, with enough money, all of the, all of all gun control rules seem to go away. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, one of our chapters in North Carolina actually attempted to challenge a similar policy that had racist uh, origins. They just, you know, joined a lot of other organizations in putting together an open letter and had a campaign about it, um, trying to do some political advocacy against that measure. Um, 
It is funny you mentioned California because I believe it was within the last few months that Gavin Newsom actually admitted that uh, the gun control policies were intentionally racist and said, basically said, and that's fine uh, because we want more of it. Uh, so, mm. yeah, just as an aside, I caught that and was like, wow, just said the quiet part out loud. And everybody was like, yep. Um, so, yeah, at a, at a chapter level, several chapters do attempt to challenge or at least raise awareness around the history and how it relates to new policies that are coming in or policies that state legislatures are refusing to, to do away with uh, all these years later. Um, as a national organization, we do our best to uh, basically boost the effort those do. I feel like I haven't actually explained the purpose of the national organization at any point in this. So if I could have a moment for a tangent, we kind Please, of exist, yeah, go for it. <laughs> we kind of exist to uh, ensure like a cohesive organization across all of these like fairly autonomous chapters, um, as well as like provide like a fundraising uh, a wing so that every one of them doesn't have to incorporate in order to not leave individuals with tax liability for their fundraising. So we, we kind of exist as that blanket organization that governs and coordinates between all of them and don't get to do as much of the cool work, I would say. I would like to do a lot more of the cool work, but most of that happens on the ground in different, uh, different locales. So when I constantly have to talk about what this chapter does or what that chapter does, that's because uh, at a national level, we're just here to make sure that they can fundraise appropriately and they're not doing anything that makes the other chapters unsafe. And really once we get past that, uh, yeah. So with that context in mind, I can, I can talk about like local activism that chapters do to try and basically push back on these gun control measures and point out their racist history. And uh, on, our, on our blog on, uh, on socialstory.org, one of our more recent articles was that open letter from North Carolina uh, the North Carolina chapter, and I believe all the North Carolina chapters uh, to their governor. Um, I don't know about the letter. Can you talk about it more? So um, this was back in August of 2021, actually. Uh, the, uh, uh, the triad North Carolina SRA chapter uh, did an open letter to the North Carolina governor um, on, uh, on, a recent, on a recent law that was being passed uh, basically, uh, I could read this really long thing to you all. I'm sure nobody wants to do that. But uh, it was regarding uh, HB, uh, HB 398. I am so sorry. This was actually an attempt to remove gun control uh, in certain cases. Uh, and they were, they were writing that letter in support of it. Um, so that's the kind of, that, that advocacy uh, compared to, say, the Puget Sound chapter's uh, uh, open letter uh, uh, against uh, against another law that was happening up in Washington uh, that is much more recent news, uh, which was the recent restrictions that were put on uh, magazine uh, size and other things that Washington has been passing recently. And they'll basically like outline like the history of these laws, how they punish, uh, how they punish poor people, how they have been used to punish uh, people of color in the past and other marginalized communities. Uh, and yeah. So that's the, uh, chapters are very in tune with what's going on at their local level and will attempt to do advocacy around that, both not necessarily as like 
outside of movement media, but honestly, it's usually much more within the left itself, just like talking about why we need to support or not support something that some state government is attempting to do. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I guess I just wanted to ask if there are any like, I know, like every place probably has its own different laws about especially like specifics of which firearms are and are not legal and things like that. But are there any like, broad principles that you think about in ter- that the organization thinks about in terms of like, whether or not to support a specific law about guns? Like, um, I don't know, like we were talking about how we don't want the police to exist. And there can be like non reformist reforms that are like, taking some funds away from the police. Um, So that might be a change that we would like support, even though we think the police should not exist at all. Um, Or I'll just speak for myself, (laughs) but not for everyone in the entire world. But yeah, I guess I'm just wondering if um, there are any sort of like things like that, that it's like, if this law has something like this, that probably means we should not support it. Or if it has something like that, that maybe means it is a good thing to support. I don't think there are general guidelines for as an organization, uh, because we definitely have uh, some different takes on gun control and guns in general. And as a big tenant organization, we try to accommodate all of that. Um, Some of the things that I think do stand as a fairly obvious litmus test are who is affected by this, by this measure. So is this measure disproportionately targeted at making it harder for uh, working class individuals from owning firearms? If that is the case, that is, the kind of gun control that we're going to speak out against? Or is this a racist policy, uh, which many are, we're going to speak out against that. So I think I think we attempt at least to look at these things from an anti-racist uh, point of view, from a, from a class struggle point of view, rather than just all gun control, universal, bad, only thing that's good is everybody has infinity guns. Like we're not, that's like the NRA policy or whatever. And I think most members generally aren't in that camp, but uh, when it's obvious who is going to be affected by this, uh, we absolutely speak out. And I will say more often than not, gun control is something that only affects the poor and the working class and the middle class too at times. But, um, But the wealthy have obviously in most places, just the ability to access anything they want. So uh, that I think is an angle we probably will never give up on just because unless you're going to take this away from the rich too, which they won't, then, uh, then this is unequally applied. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. Um, Well, a lot of all of us as hosts and also a lot of our listeners are queer and or trans. And I think that spaces like gun ranges can often feel scary to people who are visibly gender non-conforming or maybe just have blue hair since that's the conservative stereotype of us. Um, (laughs) Personally, I also have a fear of gun rights supporting spaces just being like full of, I don't know, this like stereotype of an angry right-wing man in my head who will not be excited about me, a gay trans leftist, obtaining a weapon. Um, I'm just curious if you could share anything you've seen about what it's currently like for women, trans, non-binary folks to purchase guns and use gun ranges, um, and just any thoughts on like the best way for people to safely do that without putting themselves in a situation with like right-wing misogynists by accident. Yeah. Uh, so I have 
personally seen some very some very bad situations. Both uh, both myself, uh, my very first purchase was from a place that had a big Gadsden flag uh, that you had to walk right under and like pictures of Donald Trump on the wall everywhere and very, very obvious about their politics very quickly, just the moment you walked in. Um, and that alone can be uncomfortable because I think, uh, I think uh, women and uh, queer folk in general, like kind of know where they stand when they walk into a situation like that. Like it, it says everything without saying everything. Uh, ranges too tend to have that culture as well. Um, without naming anybody, I did, I did experience uh, a, a trans comrade who wasn't taking the time to do what I do, which is I dress differently there so that nobody can see me. That's, that's how I get by. Uh, they, they were not doing that and they shouldn't have to by all regards, but uh, they'd been going to the same gun range that several of us went to for a very long time. And at some point got in trouble for doing something like they basically they lied and claimed this person was told not to sh that they couldn't shoot anymore that day and they continued to when that person was just there hanging out and wasn't uh standing up and uh like at shooting at targets or anything like that um that's a situation that i'm sure happens a lot is people get singled out and have rules misapplied or just complete lies said to basically exclude them from the space uh and the rest of a lot of people actually did manage to get that reversed by being loud and noisy. Like, Hey, we're all, we all have year memberships here and we'll never come back ever again. Like, um, but I think that type of hostility exists in this, these spaces a lot. Um, the thing that I've seen that's helpful is honestly, I go with the biggest, whitest guy I know. That's, that's my solution is uh, having a very large, uh, very large, very muscular white friend. Uh, that is how I safely go into those spaces. Uh, but also just having friends, having a group. Uh, groups tend to get picked on a lot less than individuals. Um, and basically, and thinking about safety above all else. So actually, this is a question that I like to ask people um, when we onboard them into chapters. I've participated in that quite a bit. Uh, I say, say you're at the range with, uh, with a uh, trans comrade and uh, you know, you're, you're just having a great time and you hear somebody uh, in the next bay over make a comment, a derogatory comment about them. Uh, like they say a slur. Uh, what do you do in that situation is a thing that I'll ask people. And what I'm looking for in an answer, I may be ruining it if anybody listens to this and then joins. What I'm looking for in an answer isn't to say, oh, I go confront that person because how dare they? I look for, do they prioritize the feelings and safety of the person who the slur was targeted at? Do they understand that starting a fight with somebody who's holding a gun is not safe for anybody? And like, you know, things like that. So like, cause more often than not having been in situations where people have been giving me looks because I didn't take my eye makeup off well enough the day before. Um, I don't want someone to escalate that. I would like to just either leave or try to get whatever I can out of this day, knowing that that's going to be that. Um, also, we, we do tend to share around, like, where are places that we've found that are safer than others? Like, where have we had good experiences? Uh, in the case of where I live, which is Austin, Texas, there is a known uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, FFL that people can go to. Um, it's just one person decided to start their own business, but it's 
it's kind of a, a thing that people share around with one another. If you would like to not go have somebody with a Punisher skull on one arm and a Gadsden on the other, like sell you a gun, here's where you can go and have somebody who's friendly and uh, mm. uh, instead. So I think that was a lot of words, but it's, it's, it's really difficult is the, mm. is the real answer. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you said you're in Austin because one of the gun ranges I have been to is right in Austin, Texas as well. Um, I, and what I was going to say is like I went with my brother who is like very much like just looks like a cis white dude and he's got his like camo fish fly fisherman hat on or whatever. And I just kind of slid under the radar with him. Um and these old white men were like trying to trying to correct my stance and shit like that, which like for me made me uncomfortable. But like they had no idea that they were interacting with a queer person because they didn't see me as that in that moment. They were just like, oh, you're here with this guy like you're an accessory, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I still think it's like a it's a really exhilarating experience. Um and I think it's also really fun, and I don't think that we on the left should be excluded from spaces that are fun like that um, and provide a different experience that we might not get otherwise. Yeah. Um, well, I have a question just because I'm very obsessed with this group that I've mentioned on the podcast before, which is called the Lavender Panthers. Um, so at Longtime listeners will know because I talk about this a lot, but they Obsessed. were a group of, yeah, they were a group of mostly gay men, some gay women in 1970s San Francisco. Um, and they were specifically banned from gun ownership by the local police at the time because they were afraid of queer people having guns. So instead, they used weapons like clubs, chains, and also mixed martial arts to defend their community against an epidemic of queer bashing that was happening. Um, we also talked a little bit about the Black Panthers being a specific target of gun control laws. I'm wondering if there are any specific examples that you like of leftist groups that maybe are lesser known that have used gun ownership to advance their cause in some way, or on the other side of that, like any stories of like hyper-specific gun control targeting specific activists that you've heard about? Yeah, uh, so I think in the course uh, in talking about the history of leftist groups uh, and their interaction with firearms, uh, I think the the history of the Common Ground Collective and uh, everything in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina is essential reading to understand what happened there uh, when an armed group, uh, an armed left-wing group got involved in aid efforts. Um, I think also just generally studying the the history of the civil rights movement in the US beyond the like the high school narrative that we all have gotten and seeing that uh, armed patrols were a regular part of uh, of that movement. Even the parts we call peaceful mm-hmm. included armed patrols because they were subject to so much violence. Um, so j- I, that's not a group per se to speak of, but just there's so much history and so many groups and so many heroes that I feel like don't get discussed because 
because the, the popular narrative is that, you know, everybody was peaceful and thus they won, right? Like that's the, that's the, if you don't actually <laughs> know anything about history. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's this absurd thing. That's why you can have the FBI celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday now. Like, um, but yeah, that's, that's, just something that I think was an eye-opening thing to learn about for me was just the history of firearms in the context of the civil rights movement as well. Um, there are lots of other groups right now that are doing interesting work, some much more targeted. Uh, Armed Equality is one. Uh, there is the uh, Latino Rifle Association um, as another example. So there, uh, there are quite a few that are kind of trying to fill a sp uh, this educational space. And uh, we also have uh, all of the John Brown gun clubs uh, or whatever they're going to be called soon enough. I, I don't know. I don't know what has happened with like the group, the history of groups from redneck revolt to John Brown gun club. That is a very complicated thing. And every time I think I understand it, it gets contradicted in something I read. So I'm not even going to try. Uh, but there's a lot of those groups actually have done security patrols. I think, uh, I think counter protests have been protected, uh, by local John Brown gun clubs as an example against like right wing marches. Uh, and that's very interesting. I'm not going to just advocate everybody go try to copy that, but it is interesting to see the effects and try to like learn strategically from the mistakes that those groups have made as well. Um, Gun control as a topic is one that I think, you know, it's, it's been a topic going as far back as, this, uh, as the United States of America has existed. Um, you have uh, Native Americans not being allowed to own firearms very early on in U.S. history. Uh, you have uh, people of color in general not being allowed to own firearms. In fact, most of the, long before Reagan, most gun control laws were laws to make sure that only white men could have guns. Um, that goes back all the way to the time of slavery. Um, exactly. Enslaved people being armed, um, as you can imagine, was terrifying for enslavers. So, yeah. That's that's why they killed John Brown. I think it was just John Brown's birthday the other day. I should probably have known yep. that date and said something about that, but I'm bad. At this. <laughs> no, that's great. That's very helpful. Thank you. I was, Any trying, odds? I, I was trying to think of when I lived in Portland, I, I think someone I worked with at the elementary school I was at told me a story because she was like an older person and like was like, yeah, and during this time people would do patrols in there. And I think they had a specific name, but I'm forgetting it. If you're from Portland or if you're in Portland and you know what I'm talking about, DM us. I tried to Google it and I couldn't find anything. Thank you. Oh, yes. Um, well, we're coming towards the end of our time. So I just wanted to ask if there's anything else we did not ask about that you want to talk about. Um, and also... Maybe after that, could you let us know like where folks can follow your work, SRA's work, et cetera? Yeah, um, I'm sure I, ha I always am bad with the like any final questions uh, things. So uh, I'm just going to talk about the organization. Uh, I think uh, the SRA, uh, the SRA has been going through growing pains for a very long time, but we're still here and we're still uh, we're still going and we continue to grow. Uh, it's my hope in the coming years that the 
the central national organization is going to focus a lot more heavily on the education and advocacy that uh, that our chapters have been leading the way on for a long time. And so I hope I hope folks will pay attention to what we're up to. Uh, we have you know we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, uh, we're on YouTube, and the content machine is just starting to get spun up. Uh, but it, uh, I feel like we're pushing very hard to start moving into creating a lot more educational content at that level. And uh, I hope folks will pay attention to it. Um, and consider joining up. There's probably a chapter in your area. It only takes five people in an area to start a chapter. Um, we provide a lot of support for folks who want to start up a, an SRA chapter in their area as well um, and help them go through the entire process. It's not really that much. Uh, so if, if folks are interested and just want to like get in touch with local people in their area, uh, forming even, even starting the process of forming a chapter is a great way to meet people in your area area who have similar interests uh, and want to learn about self-defense and uh, have similar politics. And maybe you all just want to yell at each other about your differences in politics. But <laughs> if some people really love that, so uh, that's also that's an option. That's true. But, some people do really love that. But why, yeah, I, I didn't... I didn't per <laughs> Debating is fun. It uh, can be. No, it can be. I'm being an asshole. I'm being an asshole, but yeah. A, I was going to say, to a point, debating is fun. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, so uh, I would just encourage people to check us out, socialistra.org. Actually, we're socialistra on pretty much every platform except Facebook, I guess. I don't remember what we are on Facebook, but I don't use Facebook. That Same. might be why. Right. Um, and yeah, uh, we have a Pistol 101 and a Pistol 102 course, uh, our YouTube video series that just came out that I feel like needs a lot more eyes because our former president, Freddie, put a lot of effort into that. And uh, Freddie is just a beautiful person and deserves deserves uh, views on YouTube. So please, please go look at that too. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Erin. Um, this is like all really great info to have. And thank you for the work that you do. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to meet you all and get to have this conversation. Well, thanks again to Erin for coming on and joining us. That was so much fun. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I think I'm the person on this podcast that uh, today that definitely knows the least about guns, but... <laughs> You know what? My brain just got three sizes true, bigger. But it's <laughs> like the yes, Grinch. Agreed. So a lot of good learning in this one. <laughs> um, so for more content like that, you can check us out on patreon.com slash season of the bitch. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at season of the B. You can send us an email at season of the B at gmail.com. Um, you know, rate, review, subscribe on your whatever apps you're using. Um, give us a good review. It helps other people find our content. Uh, anything else? y'all want to say before we close out you can also you know go over to the lex app and find <laughs> the advertisement so that Ozzy i guess we should plays. say if yeah. it's oh, yes. gonna come out like on thursday morning for patrons yes should we yeah. be like yes so i guess if if you're listening to this on thursday because you're already a patron just a reminder that our trans horror movie club is kicking off tonight 8 p.m et check your email or the discord for the link. And if you want to get in this um, uh, club is running all summer yeah. long. Yeah. So there's plenty of time. Yes, even if you miss absolutely. our first movie, 
um, become a patron on Patreon and you'll get to watch some fun trans horror with us. So check it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Love All you. Right. Love you. Love y'all. Bye. Love you. Bye bye. 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 bye.